Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words. This podcast looks at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. In today's episode, by popular demand, I'll be looking at Sir Thomas Fairfax, the Yorkshireman who went on to become the commander of Parliament's new model army. But despite the pinnacle of this position, he is often an overshadowed figure. If you ask most people about the Civil War personalities, it's the King and Cromwell who are linked to the wars in many minds. After the execution of King Charles, Cromwell went on to take the powers of the monarchy and became king in all but name. Fairfax, meanwhile, slipped quietly back to his estate in Yorkshire. It's Cromwell who, unique amongst the Civil War personalities, has an association as well as a museum to promote his memory, and it's his name that school children most remember if they are taught about the Civil Wars at all. So who was Sir Thomas Fairfax, and how close can we get to understanding the man who wouldn't be king? A man who would also refuse to be a kingmaker and a king killer. Joining me on Cavalier Cast are three expert guests, Professor Andrew Hopper, Colonel Nick Lipscomb and MJ Logue. Professor Andrew Hopper is the author of Black Tom, Sir Thomas Fairfax and the English Revolution, a patron of the Naseby Battlefield Project and academic director of the National Civil War Centre. I'll speak to him first to look at Fairfax the Man. So welcome to Cavalier Cast, Andrew. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks very much for inviting me. How would you describe Fairfax in terms of his character, um, his strengths and his weaknesses? Well, I first came to studying Fairfax um, at York University when I was a, a, a PhD student looking at um, how Yorkshire was mobilised for Parliament during the Civil Wars. And of course, he's a very key character in that. And I think what, what struck me was... Uh, about his strengths and his character was his resilience, his confidence, his ability to rebound back from defeat in 1643. I think that's because he had an unshakable faith in God's providence and his place among the elect. So this gave him the ability to inspire courage and confidence amongst his officers and soldiers in battlefield situations. Um, he showed a dogged tenacity in championing the parliamentary cause in the north, um, particularly when it was outnumbered in its initial year. And part of his Puritan faith was to show great humility and behave in a mod strive for a modest uh, deportment in his behaviour. And when he became general of the New Model Army, he eschewed all pomp and splendour um, that his predecessor, the Earl of Essex, had had in the role. I think for these reasons, he, in, he was capable of inspiring great loyalty and confidence and affection uh, amongst his rank and file soldiers. His, his memoirs are quick to blame others for when he was defeated, uh, perhaps unfairly, in the in, 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 uh, two battles of Seacroft Moor and Adwell Moor um, in 1643. He's also seen as being a little politically naive and, and even something as a of a simpleton in the affairs of statecraft. Um, this, though, I think comes from hostile sources, sometimes fellow parliamentarians or fellow or, or royalist sources, which are seeking to um, you know, portray him in a negative light. 
Yeah, and if we look at Fairfax's influences, um, how much do you think he was influenced by his redoubtable grandfather, the first Baron Fairfax? Well, this is a tricky one to answer because there's not many letters or archival records of correspondence there uh, between them. The first baron has the image of the stern patriarch, um, the Elizabethan warrior. Um, and Fairfax does seem to have inherited his grandfather's love of horse breeding and equestrianism, and later becoming something of an expert on it. Um, and much is made of um, the first baron's military exploits and his famous belittling of, of, of Thomas Fairfax's father, Ferdinando Fairfax, which I think seems unfair given the success that Ferdinando had pursuing the parliamentary war effort in the north of England in the first civil war. For, for listeners, um, you've got Baron Fairfax and then we've got Lord Ferdinand or Fairfax, his son, and then his grandson, Sir Thomas Fairfax. Can you tell us a little bit more about Sir Thomas's military experience, his first taste of warfare in the Low Countries? Well, he, he had his, uh, military education in the Low Countries. That, that wasn't for a huge amount of time. It was observing and attending at a siege. Um, it wasn't in a capacity of a professional soldier like someone like Philip Skippen, for example. Fairfax, of course, takes part in the Bishop's Wars, too. Um, he's, he looks at going to Ireland to fight the rebels in Ireland, I think, at one point. But um, his mother-in-law, Mary Vere, won't have that <laughs> um, quite sensibly. Um, because, of course, so many of the English who went to fight in Ireland never returned. Um, the, the climate and the hardship that they encountered there um, took a heavy toll. Um, so um, he, he only really had quite limited experience, I would say, limited military experience prior to the outbreak of civil war. So can you tell us just a little bit more about Anne and the Fairfax's marriage? Certainly, yeah. So Anne Fairfax was the daughter of Horace Vere and his wife Mary. Horace was the commander of the English in Dutch service and Mary was a renowned patron of godly ministers. So it was a very advantageous match for Fairfax. It helped cement his family's position at the top of the godly families in northern England to have this link to the prestigious uh, godly Veer family for their, who, who were known for their um, championing of the Protestant cause in Europe. Marriage was blessed with two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, but um, Elizabeth tragically died as an infant. Um, Anne accompanied Fairfax on campaign in the first year of the Civil War in Yorkshire, and during some hardship in the process, uh, and she was captured at the surrender of Bradford in July 1643. So she shared the dangers of the war with him in, in, the, in, the, early year, uh, in the early years of the war. Thereafter, when he became commander-in-chief of the New Model Army, um, Anne began to cause problems for him because he patronised Presbyterian ministers who were criticising his army um, and criticising um, his army for having too many sectarians, too many religious radicals in its ranks. And this caused him some political problems, his wife's forcefulness forcefulness too, did not fit the gender stereotype of the time. Um, and this was picked up upon by the royalists in the, in the royalist press who used this to belittle his political authority. 
um, saying if he couldn't control his wife, how could he claim to uh, exercise public authority? And of course, they were following the lead of the Earl of Essex, who had been cuckolded by by both his wives um, prior to the Civil War. So they were, I guess they were you know, using Fairfax as a, as a similar stereotype, as a as ruled by his wife and therefore weak and illegitimate. And then during the king's trial, um, his discomfort with his wife's famous interjections in the king's trial, this is a staple satire for the royalist underground best thereafter. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, she was quite a, quite a visible political figure. Um, and and this, this this caused him difficulties. He was hoping, I think he was hoping for healing and settling and pleading for godly unity. And it, and it was difficult with the, the parliamentary coalition fracturing and beginning to pull apart. Quite a character. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the interjections at the trial, um, I think amongst others, she, she was calling Oliver Cromwell a traitor, wasn't she? Not half the people of England were... Uh, wanted the king's trial, she said, before she was let out. I think that's one yes. reported. Yes, yes. I think the, 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 the king's trial is a kind of a watershed moment in the relationship between Fairfax and Cromwell. I don't think Fairfax ever really fully recovers. And is there evidence to show what Fairfax was like as a father? Um, well, the principal thing we could say is looking at the choice of husband for his daughter. <laughs> Um, so Mary, um, his only daughter, his only his only child, uh, in 1657 was married to George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, a prominent royalist. And of course, the Charles II is in exile at the time, and Oliver Cromwell is Lord Protector. So to marry one's daughter to such a prominent courtier of uh, uh, Charles II, um, you can see how that would have soured his relationship or what was left of it with Cromwell. Um, now, in retrospect, this looks very much like good sense to befriend and draw into your family, one so close to the king in exile. So there's a kind of insurance policy, should the protectorate not last. Mm. But of course, Mary paid the price for this. This was, it was an unhappy marriage. Her husband was uh, a dissolute restoration rape. Uh, it seems she paid the price for her father remaining safe from prosecution uh, for his role in the civil wars. And very telling, as you say, that, that he did this um, when England was still ruled by Cromwell as well. We mentioned earlier about the, the Low Countries and, and Fairfax's time there. And when he returned to England, there was a point on the eve of war at York um, when he pushed his way through to the king and shoved a petition under the king's saddle. Um, do you think when it came to choosing sides, there was any doubt in his mind that he would support Parliament? Um, when I don't think there was, but there was some hesitation. As the foremost godly family in Yorkshire, his father, Ferdinando, was expected to lead the parliamentarians. So I don't think he would have gone against his father or entertained thoughts of royalist allegiance. But both him and his father were reluctant to fight their friends and neighbours most of whom were drawn up on the royalist side. So in August and September 1642, they participated in an attempt to keep Yorkshire out of the war by a local treaty of neutrality, trying to opt out of the war. But this was sabotaged when the parliamentarians 
led by the Hobham family in the East Riding of Yorkshire, uh, really sabotaged that treaty and um, and uh, you know, initiated hostilities to derail it. So from then on, he, he, he had to commit to a parliamentary allegiance. From then on, he, he, he he's I think he's pushing his father to act more aggressively in mobilising support for Parliament to uh, encourage um, the uprisings in the cloth towns that were taking place against the Royalists in the first winter of the war um, and to, as, as he put it in a letter to his father, to join with the readiness of the people. How do you think Fairfax felt about Cromwell, um, a one-time subordinate becoming Lord Protector? I have a hunch that he fell out with Cromwell in the period between the Persian Parliament and the King's trial and execution. Um, I suspect Cromwell had assured him that King's execution wouldn't be necessary and that Cromwell changed his mind um, in the weeks running up to the King's death. This is speculation. We don't have any evidence between them that shows this. But I think the relationship between them was never the same thereafter. And it's likely that Fairfax felt that he'd somehow been misled or betrayed um, by Cromwell, that Cromwell had broken his word. Um, he's betrayed as in hostile news sheets as Cromwell's fool, Cromwell's stooge thereafter. Uh, there's a medal struck of him and Cromwell um, on either side of the medal in, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, the devil, Cromwell and the fool, Fairfax. And I think that kind of thing would have really aggravated him. He, it's interesting to note that he would not serve in the protectorate parliaments of Oliver while Oliver was still alive. Um, he was returned but refused to take up his seat. Um, but after Oliver died, he did return to Parliament as Knight of the Shire for Yorkshire in his son Richard Cromwell's Parliament in February 1659. So that's quite interesting, quite telling. Do you think that he could have done more than he did to prevent the king's execution? Well, there's there's been a lot of debate about um, the king's execution in re just in the last 10 years. Um, some feel the king's fate was sealed at an early stage, soon after when the army had purged parliament. Others feel that the execution was avoidable and not inevitable. In, until just a day or two beforehand. Um, I don't think Fairfax wanted his name associated with the trial and execution of the king. And this is interesting because the, there were a number of other Yorkshiremen amongst the regicides. There were six Yorkshire regicides, including his own uncle, Sir William Constable, his former colonels, Thomas Malevera and John, Al John Allered. Um, so... You know, he he would have had company uh, if, he, if he had gone through with the trial. But his withdrawal from the commissioners was a very public signal of his disapproval. Um, he was perhaps wise enough to realise that forcing his view through with military force would have led to more bloodshed. The army was in a very ugly mood. Um, after all the suffering incurred by the recent Second Civil War, and he may even have been persuaded that there was a blood debt to pay, that there, the king was a man of blood and that, and that um, he had the people's blood on his hands. Uh, but he just didn't want to be seen to be involved with it. Mm. 
Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? As you say, didn't want to cause yet another civil war um, by in, by intervening too much. But we, yeah, we, he he created the new model army. This is often forgotten. He chose the officers down to the rank of captain. It was his army. Did he want to see his army turn in on itself, fight itself over over the enemy they'd been trying to defeat, to have more people die, save Charles the First? Was that too high a price to pay? There was some lobbying he was engaged with, with foreign ambassadors and, and things like that, um, trying, yeah, try, making some efforts to save the king's life yeah. um, or to look into an alternative sentence or something. Um, but um, in the end, it wasn't, it, it wasn't possible. Now, why do you think he isn't better remembered after all of this? Um, well, I think there's a very short answer to that, and that's that's Oliver Cromwell. Um, Cromwell is a colossus who towers over Civil War history. His name, Cromwellian, labels the period. Aside perhaps from Shakespeare, he's the most written about Englishman of the 17th century. Wow. An enigma with hundreds of biographies to his name. And of course, Cromwell, not Fairfax, became head of state. So it's easy to see why he was overshadowed. But as I said uh, just just now, it's often forgotten that Fairfax, not Cromwell, created the New Model Army. Um, and many of his achievements are routinely ascribed to Cromwell. The, the New Model Army starts becoming called Cromwell's Army by historians. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's an example of that. I, I think Fairfax will forever remain in his shadow. But for a man who sets such a store on modesty and humility before God and his fellow men, I like to think he would have preferred it that way. Now, you're currently working on your third book, um, which looks into the Civil War petitions from maimed soldiers and particularly widows. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, I'm working on a book called Widowhood and Bereavement in the English Civil Wars, and it's based on the Civil War Petitions Project. Um, and the idea is to look at the experience of widowhood and how people came to terms with loss um, and how they were able to, you know, how they tried to access um, welfare and support for their families. Looking at the human costs of the civil war, really. Um, and I'm hoping, well, that, that the, <laughs> the deadline for that keeps getting pushed back because of, uh, you know, because of other working commitments. And because of the COVID pandemic preventing us accessing the archives as well. And maimed soldiers as well. You know, you're saying, so discussing maybe the wounds that were uh, people incurred in service. Yeah, and people, we're finding examples of people who lived with those wounds for decades afterwards. You've got, um, in, order to, in order to be awarded a pension, you would often have to have a certificate from a surgeon showing that you you received your wound um, in, in active service and you'd also uh, the justices of the peace would also want to inspect the wound itself so your body is a kind of a text your body as a maimed soldier is an evidence is a, is a piece of evidence and we've got examples of um of royalists at marston moor for example who are showing justices that they've still got pistol balls in their necks in the, in the 1690s wow. more, than, more than 50 years later you know imagine living with the pain of that for so long 
Um, um, but it, it shows that some of the surgeons, um, you know, that, that weren't as hopeless as is sometimes thought that so many of the people, so many of the wounded soldiers were able to survive so long carrying uh, grievous wounds. Well, thank you very much, Andy. That's been great. Yeah, thank you very much. To further explore Fairfax's military role in the Civil Wars, I'm joined by Colonel Nick Lipscomb. Nick served 34 years in the British Army and is a historian who specialises in the Napoleonic Wars. Last month, he released a new book, An Atlas of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which for the first time maps the various sieges and battles of the wars. But that's not all. It's also a concise history of the wars. And I interviewed him about the book in episode 10. Welcome back, Nick. So could we start by looking at Fairfax and the New Model Army? During the early stages of the Civil War, Fairfax served under his father's command. But why do you think he was chosen above all others to lead the New Model Army? Um, I think Fairfax had not made any major errors or cocked up in any way of any of his important battles up to that point. Like, for example, Waller or, or Brereton um, and uh, Essex at Lost Withiel, for example. Unlike Cromwell, let's say, he was much more universally acceptable to the different political military factions in 1645. Um, and how did Fairfax's normally unassuming, quiet personality, how did that change in the heat of battle? Well, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I wasn't aware that it did. I mean, there's no doubt he was a very principled man, and he comes across very much in both his writings and the readings about him as a very level-headed individual. You know, it's an interesting observation, but it's something that perhaps one could say about quite a lot of people in battle. And what do you think is Fairfax's greatest military achievement? Well, he's an interesting character, um, and he is a reasonably good military commander, there's no doubt about that. But his initial battles, we've heard, you know, he took off at Newburn Ford. Uh, his early battles where he's in command at Seacroft Moor and at Walton Moor. Um, against Goring and Newcastle, I think. They're both um, failures. Uh, but he's interesting because he seldom actually seemed up to the point where he got command of the new model army to exercise independent command, per se. That is, um, it appeared that he either needed or enjoyed having a strong right-hand man or men to guide and support him. And in that respect, he was very lucky. I mean, I think, for example, at Winspeed, that Cromwell's with him, Gainsborough, Meldrum and Cromwell are there at Selby, Lambert's there, and at Marston Moor, of course, he's not really in command uh, of anything other than the right-wing cavalry, uh, but he does conduct himself well. So uh, to answer the question as to which battle was Fairfax's greatest victory, it has to be, I think, Naseby, um, because that was the battle that really changed the war. Uh, but it was a battle again, and this is the curious thing about Fairfax, that had three commanders, Fairfax himself, Cromwell, and Skippen. And, and how personally instrumental would you say Fairfax was in the new model army success? Um, well, following Naseby, Fairfax did lead the new model army to a number of victories, it's fair to say. Um, Langport, where he defeats his old enemy Goring, a captured Bristol, Dartmouth, Torrington, and finally Oxford in 46. But many, um, and whilst these victories were achieved on his own, 
um, and they did lead to his appointment as Commander-in-Chief of all of Parliament's land forces in July 47. Um, It has to be said that the Royalists were on the back foot following Naseby, and the the writing was on the wall. Um, But he did show great leadership, um, and therefore it's fair to say that he was instrumental in the success of the new model army. And that's a really good point you've made there, that although the new model army came into being in 1645, Fairfax was commander of that. He wasn't commander of all of the the land forces of of Parliament until 1647. No, well, this was the evolution that um, took place in Parliament itself following the uh, conclusion of the First English Civil War, 1646, the opening of negotiations with Charles to try and uh, resolve the differences within, uh, certainly within England, uh, at, at, at that particular uh, point. Um, but it was a slow burn, shall we say, and uh, it took a long time for the, all the other armies to be subsumed under a single commander. And, and actually, that the main reason for that is that there was um, a huge apprehension amongst the politicians rather than the soldiers, um, hence the self-denying ordinance, to make that clear division between who was a politician and who was a soldier, one that was bridged, of course, by um, a few individuals, namely Cromwell. Um, but the understanding was clearly there in 1645-46 that the new model army was a dangerous tool and in the hands of the wrong man or men uh, they could force their way and of course that's to an extent exactly what happened so that's why it took two years for them to nominate um, a supreme commander if you like of, of all of parliament's land forces do you think that he did become out of his depth when, when dealing with such large personalities as Cromwell, Ayrton, um, and Lambert? Um, yeah, I think there's little doubt that he struggled with the strong characters that surrounded him. I think Cromwell and Ayrton in particular. Uh, he, as we said, was a deeply principled man. He understood and applied the concept of honour both on and off the battlefield. And that made him vulnerable to those who would set out to win at any cost. Um, He was, um, and he wasn't alone, he was deeply troubled with um, other parliamentarian, um, both politicians and soldiers, about the business of the regicide. And I think a combination of of that, uh, ill health, um, and increasing disillusionment led to his withdrawal and a distancing Uh, from Cromwell and his supporters. He resigned overall command, uh, I think, in 1650, uh, the suggestion of a preemptive strike against the Scots, um, who were being rallied now by Charles' son, Charles II. Um, But by that time, I mean, I think he he jumped before he was pushed. By that time, he was pretty much out of favour. Why do you think he isn't better remembered today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... But we have to understand that the English Civil War, like all civil wars, evoke very different memories uh, for people. Um, We only have to look today at how emotive Cromwell's statue outside the Houses of Parliament and his bust inside the Houses of Parliament are 
to a number of individuals, not least of which some members of parliament. Um, and I want to return to the Cromwell's house. This is a house behind the house that I live in here in, in uh, Old Marston in North Oxford, which um, uh, evoked an interest um, stimulate an interest to to study uh, the English Civil Wars. I realised it was a, an an area of conflict I didn't know an awful lot about. Um, and uh, one of the things I did learn in the process of my studies is, in fact, the house should not be called Cromwell's house at all. It should be called Fairfax's house um, because Cromwell never stayed there. Uh, it was a house owned by uh, the local landowner Unton Croke. And Fairfax used it on three occasions during the three sieges of Oxford to use it as his base and his headquarters. Um, and therefore, it's curious, but not surprising, that um, the owners in the 19th century entitled the house Cromwell's House. And the reason they've done that is exactly the answer to your question, is that Fairfax was not the main man. Everybody knows who Cromwell is. But um, a large number of people, I mean, you and I, of course, know who Fairfax is, but if you said to a large number uh, of young uh, boys and girls at school today, they wouldn't have a clue who Tom Fairfax uh, was. He wasn't the main man, you know, the uh, David against Goliath, Charles against Cromwell. That's how yes. people remember the civil wars, um, and therefore why Fairfax isn't better remembered today, well, it was ever thus. What you've said there about that house um, being labelled as Cromwell, I think even when you look at Master Moore and the, the battle monument to the obelisk there, it does say that um, that Rupert's forces were defeated by the, the forces led by Oliver Cromwell. And I mean, that that's because that was erected, if correct me if I'm wrong, by the Cromwell Association. And, that's right. Or at yeah. least they had a major hand in it. And therein lies another tale, um, because there isn't a Fairfax Association. Uh, to you know, put forward the views of and, and the interests of, of Fairfax. But um, no, that's an interesting point, and that's a good link. Thanks to Nick for those interesting insights. Finally, to try and penetrate Fairfax's public image and get to the heart of the man, I'm speaking to M.G. Log, an author who has Fairfax as a character in one of her Civil War novels, Babylon's Downfall, and who has explored his poetic side one which might just bring us a little closer to his thoughts and musings. So how did you first get interested in the 17th century and the War of the Three Kingdoms? There's a sort of urban myth that Fairfax is actually buried under the parish church, under the chancel of the parish church in Ashton, Ashton underline, um, that his body was put there to avoid indignity after the restoration. Um, whether that's true, I don't know. It's one of those things. I would love to, them to dig up and have a poke about, but I don't think they're ever going to do that. So it's just a, an urban myth. And then I went to York and I studied Stuart and Jacobean tragedy as part of my degree. And it all kind of went downhill from there, really. <laughs> I moved to Cornwall after that. And the first thing I did was went to uh, Steel Knot Battle at Stratton. And yeah, I was recruited into Lord Law's Dragoons. Can you sum up Fairfax the Man in a nutshell? I think he was conventional, respectable, responsible. I mean, you know, if, if I was to um, cast him now in a in a modern film, I would say he's like 1950s dad. He always strikes me as exactly the kind of man who would potter about on a Sunday and he obviously wouldn't wash his car, but 
he would mow the lawn and he would probably call his wife mother. Do you know the sort of thing I mean? <laughs> right. Absolutely what? conventional, solid, dependable man who did everything as it was supposed to be and was absolutely horrified if you didn't, I think. So as oh. amateur poetry, um, what got you looking into the, the, the poems? I don't know, but I wish I hadn't. <laughs> No, I mean, I love them, but I love them for the wrong reasons. Um, I could not actually tell you, but one of my characters is a poet. And so he writes fairly lousy teenage Adrian Mole poetry. And I was obviously Googling, you know, 17th century crap poets, really. And I thought, my God, Fairfax wrote poetry. And I read this stuff and I thought, no, it must get better than this. You know, this must be, no, it doesn't get better than that. It really, it, it, it clunks. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a, but the thing I find fascinating about it is, I mean, he was writing poetry to Lady Carey on the death of his wife. So he was obviously writing for people to see it. And how many survive to his I think name? there's about 300 of the wretched things, but they're not, they're funny thing because he wrote like a collection of epigrams which is like something out of a Victorian almanac. Do you want to hear one of them? Are you ready for this? Yeah, come, come on, yeah, we've got to hear one. Right now. then, brace yourself. A fat earth makes a horse to labour, but a good lawyer is an ill neighbour. Right. I've actually had to send my husband out because I was reading some of these to him last night and he was like, what does that actually mean? I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> Another Fairfax classic here, bread, butter and good cheese. A shield against death be all these. <laughs> I think that's a kind of dodgy version of an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Um, there's one on a pat, upon a patch face. You know, beauty spots he's talking about. There's sort of artificial beauty spots. No beauty spots should ladies wear. They but the spots of beauty are. Who knows not this, so foolish spots, that beauty ought to have no spots. Some note to spot that Venus had, admit it were, in one so bad, yet should not she have spots upon her, that would be held a maid of honour. Yet all the words make sense. Yes, I understand uh -huh. every single one of those words, but not in that order. <laughs> what, what date span did he write all of these? It's difficult to tell, because um, he obviously they were collected, I presume, by the Fairfax estate after his death. And there's various bits of biblical verse, which is... I mean, those are the ones I find the most interesting, to be honest. He wrote reams of um, reworkings of Bible verse. But it was it was a, a fairly popular Puritan devotional measure. Um, you would read the Bible, you would rework the verses, and it was a way of thinking about them and, you know, sorting out in your head what you what what you thought the words meant and what your how it worked with you and your relationship to God. And the thing that I find the most fascinating about those is that out of all those biblical verses, he manages to make the Song of Solomon not sexy. Anecdotally, Lady Fairfax was not an attractive woman. She, he adored her. Um, they were married for many, many years. He was devastated when she died, but nobody ever suggested that she was a court beauty. Mm. And the thing that fascinates me is that none of his poems are in praise of beauty. They're quite the opposite. It's all about no, don't don't be don't be attracted to beautiful women. 
there's there's one whole raft of, of poems which is basically about beautiful women don't trust them they could be as as nice as pie to your face but they're not reliable they're not necessarily chaste even if they are you'll never trust them um and i wonder if there is an element to which he felt disloyal to lady anne um he wrote a very sad little poem after her death in which he basically said to lady carey thank you for your verse on on anne's death and i can't wait to be dead alongside her i can't wait to be buried next to her that is my greatest wish but there is no no ardency in his poetry there's there's no sort of sense of him as anything other than a very conventional very pedestrian man i mean do you, do you know the song of solomon at all i don't know no i mean he's, it is one of the most erotic pieces of poetry um ever written and fairfax writing the song of solomon makes it sound like gardener's question time is why he why he even did it because you don't get the impression that he's trying to you know sanitize it and make it decent and you know, mm. all all above above board you get the impression that he probably really actually he, that's how he thought you know he, he thought yeah. in in quite straight lines um and that he, he was a little bit discomforted by by you know bosoms and the rose of sharon yeah, I mean, amongst the sons of men, my love is so. Under whose shade is my delightful seat, and to his taste my fruit is pleasant meat. To the house of wines he brought me in, when love like banners was a covering. Stay me with flagons, with apples comfort give. Yeah, and it's and it's all it is that that sort of very carnal imagery about you know food and love and, and yeah. sex. And Fairfax had managed to turn he'd managed to take all that out of it and that's an achievement i think that tells you a lot about him as as a as a man that's the impression i get is that he was quite ferociously self-contained and that his expressing himself it came out in this this dreadful poetry because that was you know his he could it's almost like he he does keep his emotions boxed up I mean, yeah, he was he was at it for years. You know, right. I mean, we, we do know that he obviously, if he was writing on his wife's death, he was writing about his new house. He was writing. Let's see, I'm just raking about here. Um, I mean, they're not all poems. Some of them are just little bits of doggerel that we presume he scribbled down on the back of an envelope somewhere, and they've yeah. all been collected together. But I'm, I mean, I, I guess it was a sort of a gentlemanly pastime. You can imagine him pottering around the gardens at home and and. You know, feeling moved to write six lines on his new house. I mean, Andrew Marvell managed ninety odd stanzas on the new house, and Fairfax managed six lines. <laughs> I mean, there's also the question about why did he choose Buckingham, the Duke of Buckingham, as as his daughter's um, husband as well, isn't it? Where did that? Why did you think that was a good idea? It makes you wonder whether or not he knew. It's a wise man who knew his limitations, and he mm. knew that he was a restricted, conventional, middle-class man, and that he thought, my daughter deserves better than this. Sat on a seat, a fool, ere long, will wag his legs and sing a song. All right, there's another classic for you. <laughs> so is he warning against dalliance there and just... I have no idea what he's on about. <laughs> so, so most poignant, would you say, um, on the death of his wife? I'm not sure. I, do. I think the poems that he wrote on beauty are the most poignant for me. Because... Okay. 
my feeling of it is is it's very much in saying sideways to Anne, I know you're not beautiful, but I don't care. You see what I mean there? Sweet, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's 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 almost yeah. He's constantly praising other attributes. You know, the mind, the spirit. I mean, I'd love to know what he thought of himself. Because yeah. again, that doesn't come across in his poetry, which is also interesting. Because normally you find you find that poets, it's all I this and I that and I the other, and there's none of that with with Fairfax. It's it's very much. I mean, he writes about solitude a lot. I think he was a man who enjoyed his own company. You know, he would look at a scene, and he would he would very carefully delineate everything that's going on in it, but without actually telling you what he thought of it. What do you think his greatest achievement is? Having the sense to be somewhere else. Surviving, I think, is his yeah. great. I mean, I, you know, I think it, w- it would be very easy to, to say his greatest achievement was as a, as a cavalry commander. And I, I'm not sure that it was. But I think the fact that Fairfax had the political good sense to get himself out of the whole mess without, with he was not executed, he was not reprimanded he quietly withdrew from public life and was able to do that quite subtly as well wasn't he really without criticism yeah and that was i think he walked a very very fine tightrope and i think that's that's part of the my perception of him as, as quite an old-fashioned you know, conventional person but um, but why do you think he isn't better remembered i think the thing is he he wasn't very exciting I mean, I mean, Cromwell was was almost sort of Errol Flynn like, you know, he was larger than life, and he was prone to talking in in sound bites almost. Yeah. Whereas we have very little of, of Fairfax's actual words, um, and what what we do have, she says, looking at some of the poetry, like you wouldn't want to put that on the front page of the paper, no, <laughs> you know. Um, and he just there's nothing to get hold of. I don't think he was a professional man doing a professional job professionally i think people followed fairfax because of what he did because he had a very specific cause yeah not because of who he was i uh, take away from it that that there's so much probably that we might never know about fairfax Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think the thing that i mainly take away is that he was a very very deeply personally conventional man yeah Um, and I think that's that's something that we probably find difficult to understand now because we quite prize not being conventional. Thanks to my three guests for a fascinating exploration of Tom Fairfax. As we heard, he was a man of the moment and that moment ended in 1650 following the killing of the king. Andrew Hopper's poignant answer sums up Fairfax well and perhaps what he may have thought about being in Cromwell's shadow. For a man who set such store on modesty and humility before God and his fellow men, I like to think that he would have preferred it this way. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. You can follow me on Twitter at 1642author or facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks for listening.